invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. We will cover the last verse of chapter 9, but primarily Acts chapter 10. I want you to note something about how God seems to operate in calling us to obey first and then understand later. <laughs> obey first and then understand later. My wife Christy and her kids are over at uh, Waitsburg, Washington, visiting with some college friend. Many of you met Juline. She's been here. So uh, with Christy gone, I, I sat down to watch a TV miniseries, the Bible series. Maybe some of you remember it was on about 2012, 2013, and if you haven't seen it, I'll just tell you right now, it's pretty violent, so I'm not at all 100% endorsing it, <laughs> but in depictions of biblical accounts, sometimes you have seen not very by the Bible, you know, wow, that wasn't in the Bible, wow, they really exaggerated on that, but also sometimes you get angles and snapshots you have either never thought of, or maybe you thought of uh, fleetingly, but never explored. And so consider with me the call of Abraham. Now, there's a call to obedience without understanding. <laughs> We're not told if this is the first interaction that Yahweh has with Abraham. Abraham was a Gentile and a group of people who didn't worship Yahweh. But Abraham's called later in his age to come out from his people to obey Yahweh and to go to a land, a land that God did not state where it was, it was unidentified, and to be his own people. If I were Abraham, I'd have lots of questions. <laughs> Why do I have to leave everybody I love and know? <laughs> Why do I have to leave all that's familiar? I'm old. <laughs> Why me? What if those who do come with me come with me against their will? <laughs> what if I'm fighting with them about this decision for a long time? What if we starve out in the wilderness? What if we're not received well by the locals? <laughs> Obey first, understand later. Even in the midst of understanding and, and hearing more and more, there are problems and setbacks where Abraham sins, right? <laughs> Misleading about Sarai to foreign kings, having Ishmael through Hagar, the problems with Lot, but you and I know that Abram's not the only person who was called to a high task and probably had lots to worry, fret, and second-guess about. Why build a huge boat? <laughs> When's the flood going to come? Why does everyone doubt me? Why should I continue? Moses is so unqualified. Egypt is very big. Israel's a race of slaves. How are they going to get out from Egypt? And in our passage today, perhaps in a small way that we might be more readily to identify with, is still obedience first. Understanding comes with obedience later. We're going to venture out into this longest episode in the book of Acts, so I'm going to probably break it into three sermons or so. But for our purposes today, we're reading Acts 9, 43 through 10, 23. So I invite you to stand. You had one more chance of standing. So I invite you to stand in honor of reading and hearing the Lord's word. So Acts 9.43 tells us where Peter stays after his most recent ministry, or I should say the ministry that the Lord does through him, the healing of a paralytic and the raising of a dead woman. 
And so we read, and beginning with 9.43, And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason? For your coming. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Let's pray. Father... What strikes me is how you take ordinary days and ordinary tasks and turn them into extraordinary things. And it speaks to us on a remote hill in Idaho. Many of us came here to get away from the world, but Father, you bring the world to our doorstep because you didn't call us to hide under a rock until you came back. You call us to build your kingdom. Many of us are wondering, how do we build your kingdom here? Father, show us today that you work with us where we're at and that you want us to start building your kingdom in the ways that you have prepared for us. Help us to be obedient to each and every calling you give us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to trust in you, to have faith and to obey first, even whenever we can't understand. Holy Spirit, help us here. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for your death, for our sins, and for your life to give us new life. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that we can be obedient to the things you call us to. And so we pray that it is you that are speaking. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. Lots of things are second nature to us, things maybe we've learned in elementary school, but in most books, even in most documents of writing, any the beginning of any piece of writing usually gives us a snapshot of what to expect in that given piece of writing. If you're writing a letter or an email, it's nice to introduce the topic, or maybe if you have an email, even on the subject line, what you're talking about. If you're opening most books, there's a table of contents, not to mention an introduction or a first chapter that gives the scope of the book. Well, the book of Acts opens up and has one key verse, one key section. It's the Great Commission. And Peter and the disciples have been given a specific commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We read that immediately before ascending, we hear Jesus say, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, here's what's interesting to me. As I just read that and I read the next few verses, the next few sentences, which says, And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, as they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, And while they were gazing up into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I used to think that they were staring because, first of all, it's spectacular. But maybe they're also going to miss Jesus. Maybe they wonder how they're going to take it from here. Maybe they just can't digest all that's taking place. But I wonder if this is part of it. Jesus' mission, it's outlandish to Jewish ears. Because we understand witnessing in Judea. We semi kind of maybe understand witnessing in Samaria. Jesus talked to the woman at the well in Samaria. Okay, sure, we'll witness. But then the world? Gentiles, Jesus? You want us to witness to Gentiles? Why, in Jewish mind, there was no reason to. In the Jewish mind, certainly they believe they worship the one true God, but God has always only ever been for the Jewish people, so why share Him? (laughs) Other people aren't invited to the table. But Jesus said it. So there is this seed planted in their minds. There was this movie put out a while ago. It's a very hard-to-understand movie. You need to watch it several times to get one-third of it. And it really makes you think, though, it's called Inception. And the plot is even itself very hard to describe, but at the very general core of it, it's a movie about the power of ideas. It's an often overlooked truth, but ideas are powerful, powerful things. People go over, people go to war (laughs) over ideas. People riot and loot (laughs) over ideas. And ideas have often very, are often very subtle, small things. And they come from small origins. And like the kingdom of God, which is a mustard seed that only grows outward and huge, sometimes it's only one phrase. It's only one moment or one occurrence that changes the course of people's entire lives. It's a starting point. 
In the summer of 1896, a 25-year-old contracted typhoid fever and he was bedridden. In fact, he was near death for a while and when he was able to sit up, his brother decided to read to him. And having a captive audience, he decided to take advantage of that fact and and pick the book that he wanted to read. (laughs) His brother had a newfound interest in the idea of human flight. And he had inherited this interest from his father, a bishop named Milton Wright. (laughs) And Milton had a large library for his time, and among his books was Animal Mechanism, a treatise on terrestrial and aerial locomotion. Like, that's what I want to read, right? So Milton's Wilbur uh, read it to his bedridden brother Orville. <laughs> and you get the idea of how that sickness for Orville in that book read to him had implanted an idea that would give birth to something we all now read about in history books. Peter's lord and master told Peter and the rest of the disciples that they'd be witnesses not only in Judea but Samaria and the world. And so far in Acts, they've been to Judea. They're witnessing in Samaria. And we find ourselves, Peter, really on the outskirts, nearing the edges of Samaria on the Mediterranean coast in Joppa. After having raised Tabitha from the dead, the apostle Peter finds himself, Luke tells us, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. A few things we can pick up here. Um, I'm going to make an assumption, or I should say I'm about 98% thinking that this was true, which is quite the bet to make when you're arguing from silence, but Simon the Tanner has to either be saved or connected somehow with the believers. And I think that because why else would Peter be willing to stay at his house? Leviticus 5.2 says, If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt and Moses goes through a few other possibilities just so you have no wiggle room and you get to verses 5 and 6 and he says that person must confess his or his or her sin and seek atonement for such things so in other words tanners were unclean according to the law touching dead things what's peter doing <laughs> What's Simon the Tanner doing if he's a believer? I have a few thoughts. Perhaps Simon had been a backslidden Jew, but then he came to Christ and personally he felt no convictions concerning his trade. Another thought is I just uh, gave you a law that was given over a thousand years prior to Peter. And Israel had been through many changes to say the least. And it could be that some laws, like this law concerning the touching of dead animals, was a little more relaxed culturally, but among persons of more devout obedience to the law, like Pharisees, maybe it was still offensive. We know that Peter won't, at least won't eat unclean animals. We're going to see that in verse 14. Some see Peter's willingness, or perhaps he knows he's, his being relatively forced to stay here, perhaps maybe it's what all the saints in Joppa had to offer. Sorry, that was kind (laughs) of... Perhaps it's the only man who opened his house. But some see it as preparatory to be willing to see the Lord's vision and further for acceptance of the Gentiles into the kingdom. 
It could be that the idea of the Great Commission, knowing that the apostles will be witnessing to the world, maybe that's been setting the stage for this next slow acceptance to where Peter's just saying, okay, he's a tanner, whatever. (laughs) Somebody else has a case of growing faith too, though. Because Luke shifts the scene and takes us to a God-fearing Gentile. We read, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send some men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This Caesarea here is uh, called Caesarea Martima. It's a seaport on the Mediterranean. It's about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. If you remember King Herod from your Bibles, the same angry king who aborted a dozen or so babies babies looking for Jesus in Bethlehem, he built this city up and it it became where Roman uh, procurators ruled over Judea. So this is probably the primary residence of where Pontius Pilate was. And Cornelius was a centurion, which means he commanded about a 100 men in the Italian cohort, cohort making up about 600 men. In Rome's conquered land, Roman soldiers were known to extort and to brutalize and to mistreat their subjects, usually not a good reputation. But among these soldiers is Cornelius, who was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms and generously to the people and prayed continually to God. In fact, we see Cornelius is entering in to a time of prayer where Jews traditionally prayed about the ninth hour of the day, a Jewish way of telling time from sunup. This translates to about 3 p.m. And at about this exact same time that Cornelius is rising to pray, Jews in Jerusalem would be doing a sacrifice at the temple. But while Cornelius rises to pray, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Question, is Cornelius saved? His prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is the language of sacrifices that Cornelius' deeds and his prayers are seen by God. But before we answer, if Cornelius is saved here at this present time, let us first consider what Cornelius saw. A vision of an angel of God talking to him directly. Now, a lot of us read the Bible, and if we're familiar with the Bible, we sometimes might err to think that this is just an everyday thing that happened in biblical times, and somehow we got the short end of the stick because it doesn't happen often in our time. But note this, the Old Testament depicts over 2,000 plus years of history. 
And so when God talks to Abraham, however God did, and when God talks to Solomon in a dream, or God talks to Malachi to write the book, we're not talking about three days in the same week. (laughs) These were three people who were not even living in the same centuries as each other. And when we come to the New Testament, we do see an angel talk to Zechariah, an angel talk to Mary, an angel talk to Joseph, an angel talk to Cornelius here. The resurrected Jesus talks to uh, John about the revelation. But we're talking about the birth, the life, and the ministry of when God became flesh. (laughs) And so when, even though the New Testament, as opposed to the old, the new covers maybe a half a century, it was the century God became flesh. And so my point is, is for the centurion, this was likely the only time in his life, it seems, when God directly spoke to him through an angel. This wasn't commonplace. It was an angel intervening because a great reality, a great truth of the gospel was unfolding, and that is this. That Christ's message of salvation, his hope of salvation was extending to the Gentiles, to people outside who had been traditionally God's people. This message, though, it speaks to our question. Was Cornelius saved? The message for Cornelius is to send for a man named Peter who, lodging with Simon the Tanner, why does Peter need to come to Cornelius? Because Cornelius needs saving. (laughs) In fact, When Peter reports this whole situation to the church in the chapter 11, he says there that the angel told Cornelius to send for him, that is, Peter, because, quote, he, Peter, will declare to you, that is, Cornelius, a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Interesting that though Cornelius fears God and he gives alms and he prays regularly, but he still needs to be saved. Now, here's the truth about the book of Acts. I think a few things are true about the book of Acts. First is a book that perhaps we can maybe most relate to in the New Testament. Because it's how to be the church post the ascension of Christ. In other words, the rules are the same, if you will. Just as the church then is learning how to be the church with the Spirit in them, so we too are a church, by God's grace, relying on the Spirit in us. However, secondly... The book of Acts is unique because it is talking about a transition era of how we are saved. See, Paul argues for salvation by faith by bringing up Abraham. Abraham knew nothing of Jesus of Nazareth, but Abraham was saved by faith in God. But also Abraham was saved by faith in or by hope that God was somehow going to accomplish that. But we live on the other end with the completed canon of God's word to know exactly how that happens. Well, it's by Jesus' death and resurrection. The book of Acts is amid the unveiling of this message of how Christ saves people. And so what often happens is there is this tension in the book of Acts. And amid those two realities I I just talked about, there are things that we can mine, if you will, and implement into our lives But at the same time, there is this account of reality for Christians fresh after the ascension of Christ, the the giving of His Holy Spirit and the newness of the church that many Christians and many denominations, we confuse those two things. What is for us and what is unique for the time of Acts? For our purposes, we can certainly dissect 
And if you want to, you can certainly read long articles and commentaries talking about the possibilities of Cornelius's faith and how was he saved? Was Peter right in saying that he wasn't saved? Um, even though Cornelius, with the light he had, he was living a faithful life. But the fact of the matter is, is that you and I are reading, especially in this passage, something very unrelated to our current reality. Because whenever you and I go out and give the gospel, we can give a full gospel. (laughs) When people start seeking as Cornelius was seeking, they have access or can gain access into more information than Cornelius had easy access to. Does that make sense? We read that Cornelius' entire household shared his faith. It seems even his servants did. And verse 7 tells us that one of his soldiers as well, and so he sends them to Joppa. And back in Joppa is Peter. Peter who is staying with the tanner. Peter who knows the Great Commission is eventually coming to Gentiles, and he has been given to the Gentiles. We read in verses 9 through 16, and the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that is the soldiers and, or the soldier and servants of Cornelius, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, so this is about noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came, uh, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter is also entering into a traditional time of prayer for Jews. Sometimes big seeds are planted. Big ideas are laid in the most mundane of times, such as whenever you're recovering from being sick. Unfortunately, I have lots of big ideas while I try to go to bed, so I have to get up and not sleep. <laughs> I've had ideas driving in the car. I had, I've had ideas working potato chips where I need to stop and write down a note on my phone to chase that idea later. For Peter here, it was a time of prayer. Nothing big on most days. Is that irreverent to say? (laughs) And in fact, we read that on Peter's mind is hunger here. (laughs) So it's going to be a prayer that like we do on Sundays, we look forward to the meal afterwards. Like, hurry up, Kevin. Let's hurry up this prayer, God. They got something in the crock pot. That's kind of what Peter was saying. But then Peter enters into a vision. That also wasn't common or happening every time, even when the disciples prayed. This is new. This is unexpected. This is, in fact, really unexpected, well, in some ways. But in other ways, Peter knows a great commission that eventually will reach out to the world. That's what Jesus said. Even so, he's praying, and the ordinary time of prayer has become extraordinary, and he sees a vision of all sorts of clean and unclean animals and God telling him to rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says no. He says no to God. Because maybe Peter feels like he's being tested since to eat unclean animals are plainly against the law in Leviticus. It's not new. He was tested when he was asked by Jesus if Peter loves Jesus. Is this another test? But then we hear this happens three times. 
Three is a symbolic number. It's meant to emphasize. It's meant to grab attention. It's meant to reinforce the truth of what's being happened. And for Peter, three is a very familiar number because he had denied Jesus three times. He was reinstated with questions about his love for Jesus three times. And now he's being told three times to rise, kill, and eat clean and unclean food. Well, this is certainly food for thought. Excuse the pun. Sorry. <laughs> but as Peter is pondering these things, he's really have, has no time to think himself to death or to logic himself out of it or what he's heard we read in verses 17 through 20, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This word, inwardly perplexed, it sometimes can be translated to doubt or second guess. Have you been there? I've been there several times, usually whenever I'm writing sermons, but other times, where I'm considering what I think to be a directive from the Lord. But usually, unlike Peter, I have time to think it to death. (laughs) I have time to wonder, is God telling me to do this? Should I do that? Like I said, it probably happens every week with sermons, but it happens with bigger things too. Peter doesn't have time to let those thoughts consume him. He doesn't have time to doubt because as he's considering the vision of eating unclean food, some folks come to him and he's called away to action. You know, I'm just convinced of this, that sometimes we pride ourselves on... And we call deliberation or we call it weighing the costs when we're told by Jesus to do something. When we're called to be disciples. When we pull our hair out wondering how we might accomplish what's been implanted on our hearts. When sometimes maybe it's not deliberation, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's laziness. There is a time for deliberation. There is a time for counting the costs. But there's also a time for risk. Also, there's a time for heading out into the promised land without all the information. There's a time for building arcs with resistance and opposition as well. There's a time for what Peter does here. What God has done is given Peter a great gift, and that is leave him no time for doubting. Read for me in verse, with me verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So there again, we might miss it, but he just invited Romans. That's like another scandal. Well, I'm already at a tanner's house. Come on in. (laughs) Peter has had ideas from Jesus implanted into him. We can go back even further than the commission before his ascension. We can go back to when Jesus took the disciples over the sea 
into pagan Gentile territory and found a demonized man, a demonized Gentile, bound in chains, wailing among the rocks. And Jesus heals him and he told him to be witnessing to those among the Decapolis. He wasn't Jewish, he was a Gentile. And Peter might recall coming back from a Samaritan village with food, having gone with the other disciples, and they returned to find Jesus at a well, not only talking to a woman, but also to a Samaritan harlot who had had five husbands and now was with a sixth man who isn't her husband. And these ideas have piled onto Peter's mind when suddenly there's a trajectory. He has subtle implications, underlying directives, but what God just showed him in a dream here sounds so radical. Eat unclean food? (laughs) And what happens feels so surreal. Go with these Romans? To see another Roman who wants to hear from me? But Peter chooses obedience first and understanding later. And we he will understand, so we find. And here's what this is in the Scripture. It's a descriptive of time, of a monumental shift. It's the book of Acts. On one hand, it describes our parameters, life with Jesus and the church after His ascension. But on the other hand, It describes unique parameters unshared by us, an unfinished canon of scriptures for Peter, 12 first-hand witnesses of Jesus carrying out the Great Commission. And what's happening is Jesus is bringing about this third tier of the Great Commission. Peter's going to go to this Roman, find that the Holy Spirit does another Pentecost on the Gentiles. We're finding that there is one lineage of Abraham that matters in God's kingdom, and that is those of faith not of blood, so Paul would tell us. And we're leading into that. We'll have a few weeks to look through that, the whole story to examine these themes. But what I get out of this first venture into this longest story of Acts is this question. What's your dream? See, maybe you haven't had a bizarre dream, a bizarre vision of a huge blanket with lots of animals coming down and hearing God say, rise, kill, and eat. Maybe some of you have. I shouldn't make that assumption. And you're like, yes, and it was bacon and nachos. (laughs) But maybe you've had a bizarre dream. And I'm not talking about the dream that comes from nachos. But maybe a dream, a passion, an inspiration to do something that just sounds bizarre because you're too old. (laughs) Because it would never happen. It could never work. Because you're unqualified. You're not capable. People would laugh and scoff and resist or maybe even oppose or criticize. Interesting thing in Hebrews 11 that Vince read for us, we get a list of what we call heroes of faith. And these faithful examples all had callings in their lives that demanded something here and now from them. Our examples of faith are more than just a list of people who put their faith in God for personal salvation from hell and sins and saved for heaven. But our examples of faith are people who built boats, left homelands, conquered nations, and built kingdoms. I'm 100% convinced, persuaded, that God gives you and me today God-sized missions. That though Abraham did not witness, he never pulled out a Bible, he still did things that set the stage for the family of God and the kingdom of God. So what's your dream? Why do you have those passions that you think God might be calling you to do, but you don't quite understand the whys and the hows? For Peter... 
What does eating pork have to do with Romans coming to Peter who's staying at a tanner's house to get him to go talk to a centurion? Like, those are all connected, right? (laughs) What does your dream that you wonder or you guess, you have those moments of being read to by a cozy brother who's interested in flight and the possibility for humans to do it. You have those moments of witnessing the bizarre, demonized man whom you thought could never be saved and never come to a sound mind to do just that. And you have those experiences, these times that were impactful, weighty ideas planted seeds in your soul and they're growing and you're wondering and you're thinking and you have time to doubt. What is God saying about those thoughts today? I'm 100% convinced, persuaded, that God gives you and me God-sized missions. And let me say this. I'm wondering if it's not a God-sized mission to read the Bible every day, every week, and to go about life and to come church and that's it. I'm wondering if it's more. What else is God calling you to? There comes a time where we need to exercise obedience first and understand later. Let's pray. Father, I I think too little. I imagine the Christian life too boring. I think it's just really waiting around to die. When every single person in the Bible who has ever been saved or ever showed faith never was saved to wait around to die. You did something, you did a work in their life that made them have life, eternal life, then and there, while they were still walking around. You did a work in them that filled them with a passion to grow your kingdom. And sometimes we hear those words, grow your kingdom, and all we're thinking about is handing out Bibles and talking to people about Jesus. Sometimes you don't call us to those vocations, but you have called us to where we're at now in the season in life that we're at now to do something that will um, grow your kingdom, but it could be in a way that we never thought it would grow your kingdom. Father, sometimes we have those moments where you've given us passions, you've given us dreams, you've given us thoughts, That if we're honest, we've either been fearful or lazy. We've been fearful because of what it means, the drastic life change it calls us to. We've been lazy because it sounds like work, and we'd rather, for whatever reason, watch the TV. Father, help us to have bigger dreams and help us to demand more out of life because it's what you demand of us. That as we read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we see people who changed Uh, their lives and changed other people's lives and it was all by faith faith that you were calling them to these tasks father we are grateful that you have changed us where it matters the most that you've saved us from sin and you've given us a new heart so that we can be obedient to the things you call us to do father we pray against the enemy that he would stop having an effect on us pray against the enemy that he would stop telling us that we aren't meant for more We pray against the enemy that he would stop telling us that we aren't forgiven because we are forgiven through Jesus. You've wiped all those sins clean, and now you're calling us to greater tasks. Help us to live into those tasks. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.